welcome everybody to Don't Panic Live! I am Ryan Olson, Vice President of Threat Intelligence for Palo Alto Networks. And I'm Rick Howard. I'm the Chief Security Officer here at Palo Alto Networks. And this is, if this is your first time joining Don't Panic... Which it is for most of these people in the audience. Most of the people in the room. This is the podcast where we take the big topics in cybersecurity and we break them down so that people can understand why they do not need to panic. Exactly. Right. So we try to make it easier, try to break it down, and not everything is going to burn your networks down. So that's what we're trying to convey here. And today's episode is special because we are live. We are recording this episode live at Ignite Twenty. 19 in Austin, Texas. And all of you wandered in here to hear what this was. Most of you guys don't even know what podcasts are, so this would be an education for you. So I'm glad you're here to figure out what this is. So if this was a real podcast, for those of you in the audience, you would not be able to see us right now. We would be coming through speakers that are inside your ears. That's how it works. Yeah, our, our actually studio is around a big ping pong table in the office, right? So uh, picture that when you're seeing what we're talking about. It works really, really well. The big topic today is... Threat intelligence. Threat, that's what we do for a living. That's what we do for a living. Right. So this is the 32nd episode of Don't Panic that we've recorded. Um, lots of different topics we've talked about in the past, but we realized that we haven't actually talked about threat intel overall. Why do people panic about it? What are the concerns people have? And uh, Ryan and I have been doing threat intelligence for many, many years, way, way too many years to think about it. So we have an opinion about how uh, threat intelligence should be done. Absolutely. So most of the time when I talk to people about threat intelligence and I think, why are they concerned right now? There's a few things that come up. One is, I think the most common one is a lot of people feel like they should be doing something that they're not doing. There's this sort of intense fear of missing out because they think that everyone around them is doing all this cool threat intel work and they're just not doing the same thing. They're, they're focused on running their sock. That's what they're trying to do every day. And uh, I think that's really common. So if some of you are feeling that in the room, that's why we wanted to talk about today, to try and demystify sort of the components of threat intelligence, what you should be doing, what you maybe shouldn't be doing, why you shouldn't even be concerned about, uh, concerned about it at all. So if you're one of those people that had the fear that you're missing out, don't worry, everybody feels that way, all right? Yep. So uh, you're in the big crowd, so we're going to try to help you uh, think about that and frame it up for you today. So if you, if you think that everybody's doing threat intel better than you, it's not true. Yeah. There are tons of people out there who are talking about doing threat intelligence and doing nothing at all. Uh, also, alternatively, if you think that the data feed that you bought is threat intelligence, um, we'll explain why that's not the case either. And we should point out that uh, we have a big contingent from Palo Alto Network's own internal threat intelligence team, Unit 42. Unit 42, give me a big whoop, whoop. Okay, that Thank was just you. really Thank horrible. You. Okay, so. All right. So. I like to start off conversations like this with a little bit of a definition. Uh, there are a lot of definitions about what threat intelligence is, but the one that I'm, I like the most is actually one that came out of Gartner a few years ago. Uh, it's a little long, and I'm going to read it for you, because that's what I like to do, just read definitions aloud <laughs> into a microphone. That's the uh, preponderance of our podcast, is reading definitions. Absolutely. Threat <laughs> intelligence is evidence-based knowledge, including context, mechanisms, indicators, implications, and actual advice about an existing or emerging menace or hazard to assets that can be used to inform decisions regarding the subject's response to that menace or hazard. Whew! It's a lot. That one. is a lot, okay. So there's three words that I really like in that definition of threat intelligence. The first right. one is context. Why is context important, Rick? All right, because you don't want to be making decisions about things you don't understand, all right? You get a piece of intelligence in that says IP address is bad. If you don't know why it's bad, you're going to be very reluctant to do anything proactive on it. Exactly. You can't make a lot of decisions using that information. Right. Second thing, actionable. Actionable means you can do something with it. That's really key. Uh, if you get intelligence that a 
sort of unknown menace of some kind is threatening your network, that can make you feel uncomfortable, that can make you worry, that can make you panic, but it doesn't really give you anything you can do. There's no action that you can take. And the last one is informed decisions. So the intelligence you receive needs to help you make a better choice. And that might be you, a human, making a better choice, or it might be a system taking information in and making a better choice. So many of you uh, uh, probably subscribe to a bunch of intelligence feeds, right? And uh, you might pay for them, you might get them from open source, you might get them from internal organizations, right? But uh, the difference between what that is, which I call raw information, and intelligence is what Ryan was saying. Right? The reason uh, an intelligence uh, group is successful is because they can give leaders options for decision making in the future. If you're not giving them options, uh, then you're no more than just a newspaper. All right? So that's the kind of a difference between intelligence and you know, uh, reporting the news. Yeah, and if you think about just like lists of IP addresses, of which there are many in our industry, which just say these are all bad IPs, they lack those three elements. So if I tell you this IP address is bad right now, you need some context to understand why it's bad. Because that IP might have been sending a malicious email. Maybe it was an SMTP server that was relaying an email. Maybe it's a command and control server. Maybe it's launching a DDoS attack. All of those things mean different things depending on how you're going to actually take action. If it's a denial of service attack, you might just block all traffic from that. But if it's an email relay and it belongs to Google, if you just block it, you're going to be in bigger trouble than if you left it open in the first place. So without that context, you can't really make a decision. And I think that becomes even more important when systems are making the decisions. So if I wanted to feed an IP list without any context into a firewall and I'm just blocking everything, that firewall is going to make a lot of bad choices. It needs more context either before it gets into the firewall or somewhere else before it can really make an informed decision. So you, what you just described, Ryan, seems like a really hard thing to do, right? So like, how do you get your hand around? How do you frame it? That's, I can see why people are panicking about uh, cyber threat intelligence. It seems like this is an impossible task to get done. So I think, and the alternative to that, it's, when I say that isn't threat intelligence, if you've been buying that and you're going, well, what am I paying for? Do I have to buy all these like 50-page reports? Do I have to subscribe to all these things and hire a whole team of analysts to go and read it? Um, that also seems really challenging to do. And that isn't the necessarily the definition of threat intelligence either. It comes down to, does it help you make better decisions? Because it has that actionable information in it to help to support those decisions. So uh, there's a medium. There's somewhere in between. Um, threat intelligence is about supporting those things, and it can be in a data feed, or it could be inside of a report that somebody has to read and process. But that's not all there is. So how do you get? How does an organization that say you don't have an intelligence group? How do you get started? What? How do you think about collecting intelligence or making something useful for the decision makers? What should we be thinking about there? So I think this is a good time to talk about what we call the intelligence life cycle. Yeah. The life cycle. Raise your hand or shout, please, since this is audio. Have you heard of the intelligence life cycle? Not Unit 42 people. Anyone else? We got one. one all the Palo Alto Network people, people have heard it. Excellent. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Anybody else that's not Palo Alto Networks uh, related? Anybody heard of the life cycle before? Oh, man. Okay. We are really uh, educating here. This today. is great. Right. Excellent. And the people who are listening at home, just raise your hand. <laughs> Thank you. And whoop it up. The basic idea behind the threat intelligence life cycle, uh, and this starts with military routes that Rick can tell you all about. I've got all kinds of war stories. Is that you've got a commander and he's given you a direction. He or she has given you a direction and said, I need you to go and solve these particular problems. I have intelligence requirements. I need you to go out and seek these out to be able to understand how we're going to fight our battle better. And the same concept applies to cyber threat intel. And you don't have to do the exact same thing, but it's helpful to understand the cycle. You get direction from your boss. 
your boss is your commander or your actual boss or your SOC, whoever's going to actually begin consuming the threat intel that you're producing. And this is important because not all intel groups are the same, right? When your boss, your boss says, hey, here's what I need you to be smart on. What my boss wants us to be smart on is going to be different from what your boss wants you to be smart on, all right? Yep. So uh, what we produce as an intelligence group might be different from what you produce because it's not the same uh, depending on what organization you're in. So once you've got that direction, you're saying, I do need data. I need some sort of data to work from. That's the phase that we call collection. Well, can I back up just a second, yep. right? For when the commander tells you what he wants or when the boss tells you what he wants, these should be some pretty high-level things yep. that don't change very often, right? Uh, yeah, there should be big things like you should understand uh, Russian cyber espionage. Okay, big things, right? Uh, it's up to the intelligence team to kind of break that problem down later and figure out how to answer the smaller pieces of it. But we don't want to be running back to the boss every three days because we need more guidance. So he, got, he has to give you some clear guidance uh, at the top. And as you're breaking that down, that's when you have to go to that next phase. Yep. You say, what do I, what kind of data do I need to collect? What kind of processes, what kind of systems, what maybe data feeds do I need to buy so that I can start bringing a whole bunch of information in and begin the process of turning that into intelligence, something that can support a decision. You have to ask yourself, can you answer the question that the boss wants with the data that you already have? All right. So yeah. And when you have all that data, then we go to the next step, uh, which we call processing. That's taking it and converting it into formats you can actually use, potentially enriching it with other data that you have. Maybe if you do have a big list of IP addresses, you're going to put that in your big list of all the other IPs that you brought in. And maybe you just go through the process of whitelisting out Google and Facebook and other things that you don't want to fully block. At that point, you're processing that data and you're making it closer to something that can become intelligence. Yeah, that's the point. Uh, with that raw information you have sitting around your organization, that's just raw information. As the analysts take it now and think about it and reword it and orchestrate it and all that kind of stuff, now it starts to become something useful, something leaders can make decisions with. So in that process, uh, the next phase is called analysis. And that's either when a system, or typically a human, is going to be looking at this and trying to derive some useful conclusions, things that can actually be passed to somebody else so that they can use them to make a better decision. Um, and that output can look like a lot of things. Uh, that can be structured data that's passing to another system, uh, or it can be a PDF if somebody wants to read a really long PDF. And that's when we get into the phase that we call dissemination. That's where you take the intelligence and you want to get it into the hands of the people who are actually going to consume it. So Ryan, let's talk about what Unit 42 does, right? The, one of the things that is an output is something for the public. Right? Yep. So describe what that is for everybody. So I'll say we're, um, Every Intel team is different. That's something that we mentioned before. Um, and it's especially different when you are a vendor yourselves. So if you guys are either operating a Threat Intel team or you have a Threat Intel team in your company you're working with, the mission that you have is around defending that one company, which means your requirements are around understanding your own company, understanding the adversaries who attack you, mapping those two things together. We have 60,000 customers. I don't have one customer that I'm trying to defend, one network that I'm trying to keep safe. So instead, the function of Unit 42 and all the intelligence work that we do inside Palatha Networks is two things. One is around how do we ensure that all of the components of the platform have the right intelligence to make the right decision to block bad stuff or to inform somebody else who's going to say, do I need to block this or not? And the other side of our mission is around 
pushing all the sort of finished threat intelligence out into the world through the public reporting that you see on the Unit 42 blog. Those reports, everything that we produce, are intended for a human to read and hopefully make good decisions. But all the work that we did before that, all the work that our engineering teams and the hundreds of researchers in the company have done, is to make sure the product is doing its defense um, before that even goes out into the public. And I don't know if you've all noticed the change in the industry in the last five years, all right? But many of the security vendors have had this epiphany, all right, that it's not about the intelligence you have that's valuable. It's about what you do with the intelligence that makes it useful, right? So uh, philosophy at Palo Alto Networks and Unit 42 is that we give our intelligence out for free because that's not what is useful, right? You need to take the intelligence and use it to put prevention controls in the security controls that you have, right? And we are belong to an organization that uh, is sharing threat intelligence with each other between security vendors. How many people have heard of the Cyber Threat Alliance? Right, some of you have, right? So right now, this is a nonprofit. It's been in existence for like three years, something like that. Uh, uh, Michael Daniel is the president of it. He was uh, President Obama's cyber czar. Um, and that sounds we, scary. I know it, it cyber does. Czar. Cyber czar. I wish I had a crown for that. Um, we should uh, get him a crown. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but uh, the 24 vendors in the alliance today uh, believe that philosophy that we should be sharing threat intelligence with each other so that our own uh, products can use it and help protect our common customers, right? So that has been a huge change in the industry in the last five years. That's actually a really good example of in the Intel lifecycle as well. One of the ways that we disseminate threat intelligence, when we want to share things that we know with the Cyber Threat Alliance, we package everything up into a specific XML format to pass over to them, because that's what they can consume and that's what they can work with. Because they're one of the consumers of the intelligence that we produce. And as I was going around this cycle, it's, it is a cycle, it's a loop, it's a closed loop. So we got to dissemination, which is where you handed your product, whatever it is, a PDF or an XML data set, whatever it is, to your consumer. The next step after that is called direction again, because you come back to the top. That's where you need to get feedback from the person who used the information you provided to say, was this useful or not? Because one thing that everybody considering building a threat intel team in your company uh, is thinking about, you should be thinking about is, who's going to use this data? Because they're the ones who hold the purse strings about whether or not I get resources that I need. And if they're not getting value out of it, if it's not helping inform better decisions for them, that team is not going to exist very long. So keeping your consumer in mind, your customer, that is absolutely critical. I've seen lots of Intel teams that uh, they, they collect intelligence just to make themselves smarter, right? And uh, that makes them the smartest person in the room when they go talk to somebody, but it doesn't really help the decision makers make decisions, right? So let's pivot just a little bit, because one of the things I think people get freaked out about when it comes to threat intel is that they immediately assume that you have to be doing NSA-level government kind of intel. Yeah, like that's if the you're sexy not, part, right? If you're not planting bugs in people's houses <laughs> and like sitting on every, like listening up on phone calls, like you're not doing threat intel. Hmm. That I, is not true. That's not true that's at not all, true. right? So intelligence has lots of meanings for different people. But in the commercial sector, where our job is not to put handcuffs on people or specifically target buildings with weapons, um, threat intelligence is about understanding the threats to your network. Um, and those, aren't, those don't have to be conflated as the same thing. I wouldn't be concerned about the fact that if you don't have those kind of resources, if you don't have a team of, of 50 people working on something, you're not going to be able to produce something that's useful for your organization. Well, let's talk about that, too, because there's a giant difference between government intelligence, espionage, yeah. and commercial intelligence. Right, in the government, they are, they not only have to collect intelligence to understand what their adversaries are doing, but they're very concerned with not letting the adversaries know what they know, right, and not letting them know how they got what they know. So they are very secretive about not only the intelligence they collect, but also uh, about how the adversary operates in the field. 
That is the complete opposite for most of us in the commercial space. We really don't care if the adversary knows what we know. We just want to stop them from attacking us, right? So, oh. he... Can I move the podium mic like this? Because I'm really loud slightly, and obnoxious. Slightly. Oh, okay. Oh, that, that was highlighting my... That was helping. Yeah, that, that was, was helping. That was my Brad Pitt uh, camouflage thing. In the, that was way funnier than you're laughing, okay? Yeah. That was way funnier, was, all right? I forget, where, <laughs> um, I forget where I was on that. Oh, for commercial defenders, we don't think you have to protect your sources and methods. We just want the information so we can put prevention controls in our security uh, apparatus. And a lot of the time, the way that we are finding the things that we're finding uh, is because the bad guy's attacking us. So the fact that we might release the method on how we detected it isn't as big of a concern. In fact, uh, governments okay, use security vendors to cover how they receive information, right? If they, in their intelligence collection, find out how a bad guy is working, but they see that Unit 42 published how they got the information, they'll just point to Unit 42's blog and say, these are bad guys you should stop, and they don't have to give up any secret stuff that they figured out. Yeah, Cyber Command recently started sharing the virus total and then tweeting about it, which is so it's weird, amazing but thing. it's a great thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So this is the point in the podcast where we need to explain why they don't need to panic. Yeah, okay. So uh, I got a few things. So we started this out a little bit. Um, we started at the beginning with a little bit of the don't panic message, but um, everybody struggles with threat intelligence one way or another. Um, but that fear of missing out that you might have, um, I think it's important to take a step back from that and look at how you distribute your resources first. So um, I used to give a talk where I'd show a picture of a cart with a horse and horse, the cart in front of the horse. Um, and the, the message was, if you're not you know, patching vulnerabilities and you don't have any visibility inside your network and you're not doing the basic sort of hygiene stuff that Nikesh was talking about this morning, you should not be thinking about building a threat intelligence team. That's something that you should wait and do later. Um, and one of the reasons that you can well, do that well, is... Well, the reason for that is that you don't have any mechanism to fix anything anyway. Exactly. So you'd be the smartest person in the room but can't stop the bad guys anyway. And what... Something you can take comfort in is that when you purchase products from Palta Networks or from others, all of the vendors who you're working with are doing threat intelligence work to inform those products to be more capable at protecting your organization in general. So even if you're not doing the legwork yourself, you're not connecting all those dots, you're not doing the kind of work uh, that you might have seen earlier in this track with Matt and Josh earlier, um, talking about how they connected all the dots and analyzed all of this malware, um, you're still getting a lot of benefit from other people doing threat intelligence practices. Yeah, so don't feel like you're missing out. Just let me brag about Unit 42 and uh, what they can do. When Unit 42 discovers something new, we can convert that into to multiple prevention controls for our security products and deliver it to our 60,000 customers in about five minutes. It's an amazing capability. And we also share that with all the members of the Cyber Threat Alliance. Those guys have similar capabilities. Ours is way, way better. But, you know, they have similar capabilities. That's a way funnier joke. You should be laughing about that right now. I right. laughed. Okay. Um, well, the point is that we can get in uh, prevention controls distributed around the planet in minutes to hours, and you don't have to do a thing. So don't feel bad if you don't have an NSA quality intelligence group inside your organization. All right. Are you still panicked? Anyone in the room panicking? Feel better? Feel worse? Somebody feel that, worse? That, that half of the room is asleep, okay? So that has not really worked that way. This is a really good time to transition into the pop culture moment. Excellent. Excellent. So, right. um... Normally, I play the little Batman sound here, but I didn't get that properly onto Ela's laptop, so pretend a Batman sound just went, and we'll edit that in. Time for the pop culture moment. So, for those Wait. of you who are brave, Woo! <laughs> the idea behind this part of the podcast is uh, there's a lot of representation of cybersecurity in the media, um, good and bad. 
Uh, and there's so much of it that we decided quite a while ago to start including little clips of these things in the podcast as we did it. Uh, some that are really good and some that are really bad. So today I have a couple things, neither one of which are especially good or especially bad, but they do have better video for them because um, there's actually people in the room who can see this video, but the audio will still work as well. All so right. let me set up the two that we've got. We're doing two today. Normally we just do one, but we got lots of time in, today in, at Ignite, so we're going to do two. The first one is from a TV show that was on CBS for a while that's called Limitless. Um, anyone see the Limitless movie that starred Bradley Cooper? Yeah. So thank you. Some people saw it. It's not bad. Um, the basic setup on this one Wait, is that... Wait, Ryan has a really low bar for what's really good, but go ahead. I like all movies. <laughs> all movies, except one. I can tell you after the podcast is over. <laughs> so the basic idea in Limitless, the movie, was that the Bradley Cooper character found this drug called ZDT, and he takes it, and he becomes like a super mega genius. So movie's totally fine. They made a series out of this as well that doesn't star Bradley Cooper. It stars sort of a squishy-looking version of Bradley Cooper instead. Um, and then the clip that we're going to play now, um, he has decided he wants to become a hacker using this super ZDT stuff. So I'm going to play it, and we're going to hope that this actually works, because it might, I think. And uh, let's go, and we'll talk about it afterward. Smartest people on the planet couldn't do it, man. <clears throat> Sounds like Quentin just threw down the gauntlet. Spellman, I'm going to prove that there's at least a chance that your friend is telling the truth. I'm going to get past the security on one of those arms. I'm going to hack the unhackable. I appreciate the help. One thing, what is hacking? Seriously? Well, I mean... I know in the movies, there's usually a montage where they play really serious music, even though you're just watching somebody type really, really fast. And then it says, like, server acquired, and then boom, something's hacked. Did it for the lulls, all that good stuff. I just don't know what happens during the typing part, or even what the word hacking means exactly. So, as it turns out, the reason movies just show a montage, they do it that way because hacking is boring. <laughs> I mean, I could tell you about programming languages or how I got in touch with Everywhere, a hacker collective that schooled me in basics, but really, wouldn't you just rather be watching some vines of things blowing up instead? My new hacktivist friends at Everywhere said there was absolutely no way I could hack into Quentin's prosthetic arm. But those guys were good for the basics. I left them behind with about a week of practice. Eventually, it was up to me. Well, me and NZT. I started timing my doses so I'd get hack time at night, and finally, after a bunch of time practicing in between everything else, I think I finally got somewhere. All right, so that's the clip for this one. So. One of the reasons I really like this one, I wanted to show it, was partly because there's a lot of visual stuff going on there, like exploding watermelons and things like that. It has everything to do with hacking. Absolutely, but also, uh, it's so true. The reason that they show <laughs> montages of people typing with techno music and other stuff going on is because the act of hacking is boring to watch. It takes a lot of time, it is slow, and that doesn't make for interesting media. So in some, in some of the movies out there, like one, uh, what was the one with Thor, um, with Chris Hemsworth? Uh, Black Hat. Black Hat. We all thought it was a beautiful movie, but in order to make it sexy, they, he had to walk around with guns and uh, make it really sexy because what we just saw was true. It's really boring hacking into stuff. It is really boring. And typically a few of the sort of tropes that we've identified over time, as Rick and I have found this and, and chatted about it, one of the things that you can tell good hacking versus bad in cyber, cyber in a movie is, uh, is there a ticking clock? 
Because if there's a ticking clock, it's probably BS. Because <laughs> we don't normally have ticking clocks. Most of the time, there's lots of preparation and time that goes into this so that they can develop a script or whatever the tool might be, and then it's really just pressing a button at a time and then typing things slowly into a command line. There's an excellent there's an excellent video by the guy that used to run TAL Office, the, the offensive arm of NSA, and he, t he describes how they break into systems in a YouTube video. You should go watch this. It's excellent, but it takes days and months and months to get to where they need to go. It doesn't happen in, with a clicking or a time or a, a clicking, t what is it? Ticking time. Ticking time. Ticking time. Clock. Speak. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, let's open the next one. So the second one is from a movie called The Net. Anyone remember The Net? I love The Net. Okay, so The Net is from about 1996, I think, is when this first came out. Uh, the Net stars Sandra Bullock uh, in a thriller that also involves her being... Uh, sort of a good guy hacker, um, and in this clip, what's happened is she's been sent a piece of malware, and she's got to figure out what it is. It's been embedded inside, I think it's a game. She's using an extremely old Macintosh, uh, and we'll talk about it more in just a second. Here we go. Well, you have been virus, Mr. DePina, and a not-so-very-nice one. You are the best. I knew I could count him. So what should we do? Well... Don't think about hitting the escape key on any of your systems for a while. One keystroke will wipe out your whole system. God, I don't know how these things happen. You know, I just ordered that security program last week. What's it called? Gatekeeper? Well, that's what they all say. Did you install it? Absolutely, the minute we got it. I think. Not to worry, everything's under control. It's gonna be okay. You're the best, Angela. Now, do you think we'll be able to get this back in stores by week's end? Absolutely. Everything but the virus. A friend of mine collects them. I don't know, some people say string. You are a genius, Angela. I can't thank you enough. Well, you might think differently once you get my bill from Cathedral. Look, whatever it is, it's worth it. Angela, I'd love to show you my appreciation. Take you out to dinner tonight, some drinks, get you out of the house. Oh, I'm very flattered and appreciative, but I... You gotta eat. So there's some, some interesting stuff in that clip, and some, uh... Some good and some bad. This movie is maligned by most people, but I love this movie. Oh, you guys great... should go out and watch it. How many people have seen it? Oh, everybody. Excellent. How many people yeah, liked it? it? How many people liked it? Okay, only a handful. Okay, so as we're going through this, I'm actually going to roll back a little bit because there's some shots. So she's analyzing this virus that's been installed inside Wolfenstein 3D, but there's some clips in here. Well, you just can't, you just can't roll out Wolfenstein 3D and not say how many people played Wolfenstein. All right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So just take a look at this. Like as she was executing it, she clicked a little button that said "Launch Debugger," and then we're looking at assembly, like probably at different opcodes, this is actually good content here. They're actually, she's debugging this. She's actually looking at what's going through. This is not just random stuff. Oftentimes what you see in cybersecurity movies, just a whole bunch of green text passing by, but they had a consultant on this. So well, they did something useful. Some of the movies we've talked about, the, the actual screen you see when the hacker's supposed to be hacking is uh, actually the more command running, a, you know, what's the, how does a Unix command work? That's all you see, right? Now this uh, picture right here, I'm not sure what the, the virus button is doing. I don't, does anyone know what application this is? Like this is a 20 plus year old Mac app. I couldn't find what it actually might have been, but it was clearly something that was intended for analysis of Mac binaries at the time, um, and pretty interesting. I thought this was a good example of some stuff popping up in the background, as well as some stuff that's not so good, like uh, don't press the, what was the escape key, or it wipes your whole it, Yeah, I thought that's that was a little, little bit, weird. A little yeah. bit uh, uh, strident, yeah. All right. Those are our two pop culture moments. We can go back to Ela's desktop, um, which is delightful. Um, <laughs> 
It's, oh, it's a oops, great desktop. Oops, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so at this point, what we wanted to do with the rest of the podcast was give you all an opportunity to ask some questions. Um, ask questions of Rick and I about threat intelligence or other things. Um, and while you're thinking about those, I think we might have some mics in the back of the room so we can get audio. Yes, is that true? Um, one of the questions that I get most frequently about threat intel in general is how do people get into this work? Like, how do they actually move their career into that? Um, so I, I wanted to give you some of my thoughts on it, and I think Rick probably has some good thoughts on this as well. Um, there isn't a single path sort of into the world of threat intel. Um, a lot of people assume that the traditional path is you work for the government, you did their kind of intel, and then you moved into another space. But I'll tell you, um, there's people in the audience who work for me right now who definitely didn't follow that path. Um, I personally didn't follow that path. Um, I actually started working, my first job was in malware analysis and then for a threat intelligence, commercial threat intel organization. Um, so I went into this sort of as my first role. And other people who I know, a lot of them start in a SOC in some cases. Uh, they're working in a SOC, they become sort of the best person in that SOC, the person who goes and solves the hard problems. And as they get better and better, people say, hey, you know, quit solving all these tickets, go and do research for us instead, try to better understand the adversaries who are attacking us. And that becomes the beginning of a whole bunch of threat intel functions. So I do have some thoughts about this, right? And uh, I got two things I would recommend anybody thinking about breaking into this field. And the first is uh, re the, the thing that I look for in hiring Intel analysts is not what you might think. We, you, know, you look at the resume, you look at the job requirement, can they do all those things? Yes. We don't look for certifications. Just Cer Yeah, not looking like, for certifications. There's one we're going for. Um, but one of the questions I always ask our Intel analysts is, can you write? Can you communicate, right? Because you may be the smartest person on the planet, but if you can't convey what you know to the CEO, you're no help to me, right? You're doing Intel and analysts. You're transforming raw information into intelligence products. That is meaning you are communicating. So you should be practicing writing as much as you can in public speaking, because we're going to put you in front of a CEO or a board member and said, explain you know, ransomware to these guys, right? So that's a skill set that you can practice on your own, and you should be doing that anyway. So that's one thing you should do. The other thing that is required is your ability to solve problems on your own, all right? Because uh, the, the one question I ask everybody that comes in my desk when they're interviewing is, what are you running at your house? Because if you're not running a Linux box that you built yourself, you're not smart enough to be on my team, right? It's not that you have to know Linux. You have to be smart enough to figure out what to do to build your own machine to make it work, right? Because I'm going to hand you a big bag of problems to go solve because I can't solve them. I'm not smart enough to do it. You have to solve them on your own. You have to be that kind of person who can teach yourself, seek resources, help get questions from the people that know more than you do, and solve the problem. Those are the two big things I'm looking for in a Unit 42 analyst. All right. Any questions out there? Oh, man, it's dead. Okay. Really, no questions. I can out wait there. as long as you can. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I have a question about that. She's okay. got a mic. Let her bring it up here. We can talk about all sorts Whatever of Whatever you want. You're going to talk about geek culture? All right. So, so I want to know what you guys think about the propensity for security vendors to, to dis disassemble and decrypt SSL and essentially break it. Um, I, I understand why we need to do that and why we need to see inside the packet. Um, it seems like we're always just a little bit behind whatever the latest version of security is in that. And in some cases, we even weaken SSL and TLS in order to accomplish what we need to. Can you talk about where you think that's going? What TLS yeah. 1.3 is going to do to the landscape? New features that come out to defeat what we're doing? What, what does that look like long term? Go first. So I would say 
to the beginning of the point, 80% of traffic at this point in some networks is SSL encrypted. And that leads to a lack of visibility for a security team and not being able to know anything about their traffic, um, which is really problematic. And uh, I understand the perspective of people are uncomfortable having their data decrypted, their information decrypted, so that can be that can be broken in the middle and people can observe it. But when it comes from the perspective of the network operator, the person who owns the infrastructure, the data is running over, um, they need to be able to see the data. So uh, I think it's it's. Uh, from a feature set for Palo Alto Networks, PanOS implemented SSL decrypt quite a while ago, and it continues to be updated to be able to function with the latest. Um, but as this happens over time, I expect nearly all of our customers to adopt some level of SSL decryption. And the real key from my perspective is understanding how you get your users comfortable with what you're decrypting and the policies that you have around it. Because it's not necessary, if your SSL decryption solution is, I'm going to decrypt all SSL traffic, that's a terrible solution. Because if you're doing that and you're breaking open people's medical data and their banking data and things that are truly personal to them, you're going to lose their trust and they're not going to want to pass over your network at all. But if you can properly communicate what your policy is and explain why you're only looking at the things that are unknown or likely to be untrustworthy, um, I think you can get most people on board and understand why that particular traffic needs to have that broken and inspected. Uh, I'd like to turn your question around a little bit, right? It's not that the vendors have the ability to break encryption, right? It is the owners of the security product decide whether or not they're going to do that, right? And it's a risk question. Right? Everything boils down to a risk. How risky is it that 80% of your traffic is all encrypted and you can't see what the adversary is doing down the intrusion kill chain? You guys can decide what you want to do with that, right? You know, from my perspective, I want to open it up, I want to see it, I want to identify it, I want to block it in multiple locations. Uh, so for my organization, we're going to open it up. But I can see where other organizations would say, no, I don't want to do that. There's a don't panic on cybersecurity risk assessment. Go check it out yes, on indeed. iTunes. I think it's really interesting too the kind of the play between laws, HIPAA, all the different compliance that comes in with that. Uh, we recently had a threat uh, assessment done, where they were able to create a new website and get our fire or our proxy vendor to classify it as healthcare, trying to get around SSL decryption as well. Yep. So I don't think it's a problem that's solved. I don't think it's a problem that's gonna be solved for a while. But it's it's interesting to see the direction that it's going. Yeah, I'll agree and say I don't think there are. I think the majority of problems in security aren't solved. And one of the reasons for that is. We always have an adversary. Uh, Nikesh talked about that a little bit this morning. There's always someone on the other side of the table who's trying to undo the things that we do to keep our data safe, which isn't true in every environment. Um, there are places where you, you hammer the nail in and it stays in and you can just trust that that's going to work. But we always have someone trying to pull that nail out and that makes everything a little more complicated. Well, and you're all uh, Palo Alto Networks customers, I'm assuming, right? So you already have the ability now to identify, let's say, HIPAA traffic through the app that the employees are using. So you can say that app, we're going to do something different with that app versus all the other apps, right? It uh, doesn't mean you might not want to open it up and see what's going on, but at least you can handle it differently, right? Any other questions? Yes, sir. One more from a handsome British gentleman, I think, who I've never Thank met. Thank you. Who I've never, even though he's wearing a Uni42 shirt, never yeah, met him before. Um, so I'm not sure I heard you talk about open source intelligence, but it's a thing. Uh, can you talk about the benefits of that versus closed, uh, how it's evolved over the last you know decade or so. Absolutely. So um, open source intelligence is intelligence that's open to the world. Anyone can go and access it. Closed source being things that are only accessible under certain forums, either because you paid for it or you have some sort of agreement or you're generating it yourself. Uh, the world of open source intel has exploded in the past decade. 
Uh, and I'll say, I think two historical things really happened, um, which changed a lot of what happened in open source Intel. Um, one, um, back in 2010, there was a big attack on Google called, we called the Aurora attacks. Um, and shortly around the same time, Lockheed Martin published their kill chain paper, I think a couple years earlier than that. And those two things led to a lot of people saying, hey, there's a lot of bad, there's a lot of adversaries out there who are relatively sophisticated who are attacking big networks. And we have this model for understanding how they operate. If we can share more publicly about this, that'll be a good thing. And two, we'll get good attention for our company, which wasn't a thing that was true before that. People didn't want to go out and talk about breaches they had experienced or breaches they were discovering prior to the Aurora attacks. And that changed and it led to nearly every vendor at some level pushing a lot more intelligence out into the world. We publish tremendous amount of reports just completely for free out to the world, but every vendor does this on some level, which has meant two things. One, it, there, there's a whole bunch of information that's available now and a lot more for all of us to go and read. And if you'd seen Brittany Ash's talk yesterday, it made the whole landscape a lot more confusing as well, because all of a sudden now you have 50 different people naming 50 different things um, and a lot more complexity for people to, to work through. So I'll say there's a lot of benefits of all that open source intel coming in, um, but there's some downsides as well. And that's the change in the industry we were talking about before, okay? It's becoming more acceptable to share threat intelligence with everybody as opposed to keeping it secret. Like yours is better than somebody else's. It's really not. You might have a piece of it that nobody knows about, but it's pretty much everybody's seeing the same thing. Yeah? Yep. All right. Any other questions? We're at the end. We're at the end. Thanks, everybody, for joining us for the very first Don't Panic Live. <laughs> and thank you for clapping on cue. Thanks, Rick. Thank you, Ryan. It was glad to be here. We'll see you on the next one. And please download and listen to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to the Palo Alto Networks podcast series. For more useful information, including conversations like this one, visit paloaltonetworks.com.